are you doing? How are you? I am doing well. I'm uh, so glad you're here and uh, you have your pets with you. Yay. So they may become a part of the podcast. My pet, my dog, uh, Obi, is in the other room. She may start barking and who knows, join in. That's the way it rolls here. We're just like all like all homey and friendly and stuff. I love it. Yeah. And we are so homey and friendly. I do not do bios or introduce people in the most traditional of ways. So why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Sure. My name is Talid El-Sabawi and I am a assistant professor of law. I'm at Elon University right now, and I will be making a transition to Florida International University's College of Law in um, the summer. So I have a PhD in public health, health services, research, policy, and management, and I focus on policy. I have a doctoral cognate in political science, so that's where the policy and politics comes in. Wow. So how did you even get interested in, um, well, first of all, talk about some of the research you do, and then I'll ask you how you got interested in that research. Sure. So... Uh, I say I do addiction policy research and mental health policy research. What I mean by that is, is that I look at how policies that are created to address mental illness or substance use related problems are formed, how they're developed, how they are pushed through the policy process, how they're implemented, if they work. I do also some draft, some legal drafting. So I've written some model laws and I've, I've been doing more of that lately in advocacy work. And so, so really I'm at the intersection of public health law and by force, the criminal legal system, because I, you know, I didn't set out to do the criminal legal component, but it, it just keeps popping up because of community collaborators I work with and the ways our, our laws are structured. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how did you, how did you get interested in this? Like, and I know some of it is by, by forces, you say, like sometimes we fall into what we're doing, but was there um, also from your perspective, like, wow, this is, I'm called to do this work. Yeah. So, you know, when I started my bachelor's, I, I thought I wanted to be a business major, but then I kept trying all of my, my solutions to the problems that corporations were facing was like, why, why don't we just give employees ownership of the company? And, the, you know, so I kept trying to socialize things. So I realized pretty quickly that business probably was not a good major for me. I took, you know, I took some classes and I just fell in love with psychology. So my bachelor's is, is in psychology. And as a psychology undergrad, I, I did research with professors. And one of the professors I did work with was a JD PhD Ah. and he was a developmental psychologist and he had his JD and he did work with foster children to kind of understand temporal memory and how much we can expect them to remember as as witnesses. And I did the interviewing for him and, and I really enjoyed working with the foster children. And eventually I thought I got what I thought I wanted, which was this full-time gig representing children in foster care. And as I'm representing them, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, I need to focus on policy because this case by case mm. effort is not going to work because the system is completely broken. Yeah. Right. And yeah, so yeah. that's when I was, I, I had kind of a switch and I mm-hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to look at mental health and addiction policy. Um, and, and I was going to focus in mental health policy because I did and stu- still do believe that there is a large, uh, one of the biggest concerns I always had was that 
both parents and children never received mental health counseling or treatment, despite the trauma that clearly was happening just by them being involved in the process. Right. And, and, you know, it it always shocked me. We would send parents to drug court. They would have to, you know, pee on a stick or whatever. We care about abstinence, but they never got mental health treatment, which just blew my mind because these are people that had suffered from sexual traumas and, you know, and so uh, I was, yeah, I was kind of passionate about that. So I went to, to get my PhD and I was going to focus on psychology, um, but I had a very, uh, a great professor from law school who was the only black professor that I had as a law student. Only, well, let me rephrase, the only professor of color I had as a law student. And he remembered me, uh, the others didn't or um, refused to write me letters of recommendation because I got a B plus in their class or a B instead of it. Now, mind you, this is like years later after I'm a barred attorney in two different states and I still couldn't get letters of recommendation from. So, so anyway, it's, so this, uh, this professor was, he was like, all right, I'm going to help you. If I need to call schools to tell you to let the, you know, let you into their PhD program, I'm going to do that, but you need to apply to public health and not psychology. And I was like, eh, I don't know about this. <laughs> I always wanted to do that, you know? And so he's like, no, trust me. And so I said, okay, well, this is the only person who, you know, my academic career that is still willing to support and go to bat for me. So maybe I should at least apply to a couple of public health schools. Then after I did the research, I was like, actually, I can do exactly the type of research I want to do in public health. Right. And, and it is uh, not focused on the individual. It's population based, which is I'm much more interested in. And, and so and so I did that and I ended up only applying to public health schools. And he did, you know, when I got into the Ph.D. program at Ohio State, they told me one of the reasons I got in was because my letters of references were so good. It felt like they knew me. And so, you know, I know it's from the support that I got from him and from um, from a couple of other folks. So so that's how I ended up kind of on this track, how I ended up doing addiction was even more um, you know, focusing on addiction was that my uh, dissertation chair, she is a, a expert in mental health policy. And she is, you know, has been, was part of the peer respite movement. I mean, she's kind of been around and I, I was her last year before she retired. So you know, she, she's a tough cookie. She, she got her PhD from MIT and she's a political scientist and in, in a public health department. But, you know, I, I was like, if I'm going to ever graduate, you know, the point you graduate is when you know more than your dissertation chair does, right? And they can admit that you know more about that one thing. And I was like, what am I going to pick in, you know, mental health policy that so they said, you know what I'm going to focus on? Addiction, because nobody's looking at addiction. And at the time, nobody, what, 2014, right? Nobody was looking at addiction policy. And so I found like one of the few classes on it in the social work school to take some classes with the social work student, understand how they treat addiction. I had to make my own reading list because nobody was writing on it at the time. And then, you know, so so I kind of got in there and I was like, you know, this is really fascinating. So and she always taught me, you should never propose a policy change until you understand how we got here. Oh, so she yes. made us read all of the policy history, 
right? So I was like, guess I have to go back to the 1700s, right? So that's what I did. I started the 1700s. Mm. And, and, um, and, and so that's, that's, that's kind of how I, how I ended up here with this, you know, this particular specialty. You were talking about, um, there are a couple of things that have happened since that time, but that are kind of timely. But before I go into a timely thing, on the panel, you were talking about model legislation for behavioral health crisis response. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, Okay. Because I think, you know, this is where the world is focused right now. Everything is on, you know, the 988 number and a reforming uh, behavioral health or mental health crisis systems. And um, the way that we generally do that, I think you, you gave some really good examples about sort of looking at policy and the history, where the heck did this come from in the first place? And we don't spend a lot of time doing that. We sit on the policy where we're now today and then move forward off of that without understanding the foundation under which, where the heck did that come from? Everybody's looking at, you know, uh, implementing programs. Well, if we could just implement this program or take this program from there. But I, I like the like how you were framing this idea of, look, policy is the thing Um, or legislation is the thing that is going to institutionalize it, not the program itself. Right. So can you talk a little bit about, about that? Yeah, sure. So, so let me kind of explain why we drafted the model law and why I thought it was so important and, and, you know, dedicated very concentrated amount of time to get it written quickly. Um, So the Greensboro Homeless Union came to me when I had just started working at Elon University and um, they they asked if I would help them and they you know it was their idea actually to have a cahoots like mobile response here in Greensboro North Carolina and they were proposing it in memory of in remembrance of one of their associates Marcus Dion Smith who had been killed here in Greensboro North Carolina by law enforcement when he was amidst a behavioral health crisis and he was a black man that you know, was was killed through the use of a rip hobble restraint as they were trying to subdue him. And, you know, there what he didn't have a weapon. He was not a risk to safety, banging on the police car windows when he was trapped in the police car. I mean, that was the, the extent of. And so, you know, we started trying to figure out, all right, so this is how politics works. This is how legislative behavior works. I've written about legislative behavior a bit. And there just wasn't political momentum to have a non-police response. So Greensboro went with what I'm seeing as kind of the most common initial responses. Let's train police officers. That's response number one. Okay, you don't like that or that doesn't work. Well, let's send trained police officers plus a clinician, Mm -hmm. maybe duly dispatched, maybe dispatched after five hours, whatever the, you know, guess what? That didn't work either, but they didn't want to be $500,000 taxpayer dollars later. And and so there, there just wasn't any appetite for it. And then we had this focusing event that focused national attention on police use of force against Black persons that results in death and other harmful consequences. And we know that George Floyd wasn't the first, nor will he be the last, but he was the focusing event, unfortunately, you know, by just because of the media coverage and the Black Lives Matters protests that that resulted, uh, that demanded change. And I said, this is this is a political window of opportunity. 
there is political appetite right now. We need to make sure that we do it right. We need to take advantage of this political moment when legislators are being forced to do something and make sure that what they adopt is something that is true to the community, that is not diluted, that isn't co-opted by law enforcement or clinicians, that it doesn't turn into another forced institutionalizing, you know, mechanism of forced institutionalization. And I said, let's write the only law on non-police behavioral health crisis and let's write it so that it is community-centered. Through all that feedback, we put it in and included things that were important to community members. I tried to keep the power with the community by creating an advisory board that is not appointed by the city government or county government, that it would be a public application process rather than an appointment process. And so the idea is that it's not heavily experts or heavily, you know, law enforcement or clinician, you know, that it is mostly, and they have the power of the purse, the ability to vote no on a budget, which is pretty powerful. Anything having to do with money and politics is powerful. Uh, so the idea was if we, if it is in law, then it is a lot harder to get rid of it. I love it. I love it. And I'm just, I'm, I'm curious as somebody had asked me, it was somebody from the uh, provider guilds and they said, what did I think about the cahoots model? And I said, oh, this is interesting. Uh-huh. Okay, mobile crisis. And it's not a co-responder model. And, and I said, but wait, where is this? <laughs> right? He said, oh, yeah, it's in Eugene, Oregon. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, Eugene, Oregon? Let me go check the demographics of Eugene, Oregon. That's just me. I just kind of, I'm, I'm very contextual. So I was like, let me understand where this is happening, that people just want to lift up and expand as is in other places that may or may not look like that particular place. The person who was asking me happened to be African-American. And so I said, have you looked at the demographics of Eugene? Oh, no. And I said, well, you, you look it up and you tell me what you think. And they were like, oh, holy heck. And I was like, yeah, it's about 2% African-American. I mean, I think that's probably an over, over underrepresentation, whatever. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really small number, in other words. And so I, be, I, I be started to wonder but how do we know that there are still not disparities happening even with mobile crisis for this small group of people? And I'm not saying no to it. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying it's a bad idea. I'm saying, how do we understand it in the context of the community? How does the community get to define that? Yeah, this would be good for our community or not. And then like you're saying, how does it become something that is sustainable over time, um, especially if it's working? you know, um, or, and, or if it needs more time to be tweaked and work, because sometimes you just set it down there. It's not going to work right away. Right. Right. So I think that component we tried with the reporting requirements, one of the things that, you know, we encouraged was demographics, but the issue comes in is that you have to get the 911 data to figure out who is it. Cause we know that your research shows that how a call is dispatched predicts whether there is going to be excessive or use of force, whatever the, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, by law enforcement. And so I don't doubt that this has the potential to turn into, um, or to be reflective of our society as it currently is. In the least, it's a new institution. So it doesn't get the institutional baggage of law enforcement or, mm -hmm. you know, social services or the other potential agencies that could respond. 
So our model is a non-clinician model. We do not include a clinician on the response team. It doesn't mean that a clinician would, you know, just like cahoots, there is a clinician that is at the, the clinic, but not in the response team. Right. We wanted to be able to define at a later time what a de-escalation or a behavioral health crisis worker could be. We did that because we felt that Eugene is a very unique environment and we wanted to make sure that even in other jurisdictions that there would still be an emphasis on autonomy of the person in crisis. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want the person who was the de-escalator to be wearing two hats. We also did not want to use peer support because in the substance use treatment space, it has a very long history of being associated with certain types of recovery communities. Mm-hmm. There are states that define uh, in law what a peer is, and it's a credentialed yes. uh, position. And, and we didn't yes. want to get any of that baggage. So we're really trying to find something new. And we really would love the community to staff the mm-hmm. team. So something like a a mental health first kind of response that's in Sacramento and Oakland, that's community-based, there's a no co-responder, there's no clinician, even though somebody may be a clinician in training, they're not operating out of that out of that clinical role. They're operating out of that I'm a community member role. And I think that's interesting, you know, because peers can show up in lots of different ways. They can be credential, they can be mutual aid where there's no credentialing, no formal training. And I guess we're, we're also trying to figure out like big P, little P, as I call it. So little P meaning, meaning sort of, I'm like you, I've been through this like you, and I'm here to kind of like help you see that I'm not going to be like, you know, the clinician, I'm not that, you know, and, and I think, and, and this is where, you know, I'm, I'm also on the board of the national association of peer supporters is like, mm-hmm. where is the balance between sort of the credentialed quote unquote professional workforce? Where, where is that? And the co-optation of that workforce to do things that look far more clinical if you right. will, or medicalized, even though we are um, much more kind of in the uh, supportive recovery, supportive role, mm-hmm. it, it is sort of this weird kind of balance. And I'm, I'm still appreciating it because sometimes I don't even, I don't even know what's right. And I, and for me, it's kind of like, well, again, maybe the communities have to decide as long as it's not yeah. a decision that's based on the need of the service recipient, for lack of a better way of putting it, not so. So what we did was to kind of put a little bit of guardrails around it, we defined behavioral health consumer as somebody with lived experience with the behavioral health treatment system, whatever that looks like, because the point of that role is to, you know, help somebody understand their options, help them figure out how to navigate things. And so it was a very specific type and to know, you know, to focus on patient autonomy, which we, or, you know, person autonomy, which we mentioned multiple times in the, in the law, but we also wanted to make sure that again, it would be low. So we require them to provide information about medication for opioid use disorder or other medications Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and harm reduction services. We're, We're pretty explicit about it because it has been excluded for 
decades. So, so we felt the need to be yeah. explicit. <laughs> and you just went down the, the harm the, reduction. Uh, bandwidth. Yeah. Yeah. Rabbit hole. <laughs> I, I, yeah. The rabbit hole of harm reduction. And I, I think I read somewhere you're a harm reduction Nista. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so I have two questions. One, one is going to be about harm reduction and where we are with that, which is kind of like everybody, not everybody, but a lot of pushback around it. But um, also what is the uptake on, on the model law? Are people using it or people trying to figure out how to utilize sort of the work that you all have done? You know, now? that's a great question. And somebody else asked me about implementation of it the other day. And I said, you know, we haven't had time to track <laughs> so we haven't looked to see who has adopted okay. it. I suspect, you know, I did get contacted by a somebody I went to law school with who is a legislative aide for um, for a high ranking member of the house, and and, the, and they they were like, oh, this is Toledo. I went to law school, so like it got to Congress somehow, right? So like mm. I wouldn't be surprised if parts of it are copied and pasted. What we have seen when we've tried to advise local governments is that there is a lot of pushback to the advisory board power. And so they don't want, uh, they want to be able to appoint the people on the advisory board. That is a big uh, piece. The, and then there is wanting to add a clinician to the team is a big piece. So I don't know who has adopted it with fidelity. I know that we've had thousands of downloads, which is really mm. cool. And I know mm-hmm. people have read it. Um, I know they have it. I know they probably copy and paste parts of it. So, so yeah, that's, that's been a big barrier. That- but at least it's there. I think that's, that's the start to have people thinking even differently and using tools to drill down deeper and start in a different place than where we generally start, which is cahoots or co-responder or it's like, well, well, maybe no, maybe there are still other options here, especially ones that can help things be sustained, right? Right. And then um, now I, I don't know if we're going to have enough time to talk about harm reduction. This is like a problem. Oh, I could talk about harm reduction for hours. So Yeah. Yeah. But tell us really quickly, like what's going on You can break this up harm- into two episodes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this part, and then we're going to talk about the crack act and the pipes act now. So, yeah. You know what? So fill us in and I don't know how far we'll get with it, but yeah. What's what the, what the, I know going? what the. Yeah. Look, I was sitting here working on my grant application. Um, it was due Monday. I pick my head up and I'm like, why is everybody talking about crack pipes? What happened while I was <laughs> in the hole submitting this? I look up yeah. and I'm I'm like, what legislation? What is going on? So yeah. I, I have a, a paper that didn't start off focusing on this, but ended up um, becoming a paper on middle-class white exceptionalism and drug policy. Mm-hmm. It builds on Helena Hansen's work and others that talk about kind of the white opioid crisis, but it, it talks about it in using a political science or policy lens. And it points out that not only do we still have these different responses in the media or so forth, but our policy responses are still different. And I talk about things like drug-induced homicide charges, and my co-author, who's an expert on prescription drug monitoring programs, talk about how those are racially biased. And so we talk about how it's morphed, but it's still the same, where we paint people of color, especially Black persons, who use or possess drugs as deviants. Mm-hmm. So the, so what happened was the, I think it's the Washington Beacon, they had a piece 
that said that the Biden administration was spending $30 million on crack pipes. The $30 million they're referring to was money that was set aside in the American Rescue Plan that was going to harm reduction groups. So for the first time in history, we have money that's explicitly set aside for harm reduction. It mm-hmm. was a big victory for harm reduction. So let me back up and talk about what harm reduction is. Mm-hmm. So what is harm reduction? Harm reduction is the idea that people should be met where they're at and that we should help them reduce the harms of whatever their, their choices are, or their behaviors until they are ready to receive treatment or to stop um, stop those behaviors. Uh, mm-hmm. So that is, it is this idea that we've been given up on, on people and we need to keep connection with them, mm-hmm. even if they're amidst chaotic substance use, or even if they, you know, choose to, to be unmedicated and to, to live, you know, out outside, because that's what, that is their choice. Mm-hmm. We don't give up on them in a sense. We still think they're help. We think they're worthy of love. They're humans. And we should help them stay healthy in, in, in all ways that we can. Mm-hmm. So um, director, former director LaBelle was able to get members of Congress to agree that there would not be this ban on that funding that was in the American Rescue Plan, which was huge. And so everything's moving along. And then it's, it's about time for SAMHSA, which is the agency that is you know, overseeing the, the um SAMHSA is getting ready to award these grants or the application deadline or something like that. So then the media, well, at least one little paper perks up and says, I've heard different things. And so, and I haven't looked into it, um, but, but essentially, so there's usually kits that are handed out uh, by harm mm-hmm. reduction groups mm-hmm. and they can be kits for people who inject drugs and smoking kits for people who choose to smoke drugs. Now mm-hmm. we know that, I mean, this is a proven fact that crack has been associated with black persons. Yeah. And so have crack pipes. All right. Pipes are used to smoke methamphetamine too. Right. So it's, mm-hmm. it's not only crack, you can smoke heroin. Mm-hmm. So, so the pushback has been, oh my God, the Biden administration spending $30 million on crack pipes, because supposedly in a Q and a session, there was a question that was asked about whether the money could be used to pay for pipes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the law does not ban it. So, of course, I mean, Samsa was saying, if this is true, if this is what happened, then they would be correct in saying that it, the law allows it because the law does allow it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's pretty clear on its face, right? Mm-hmm. So Congress getting all up in arms now, it's like, you just passed this legislation. <laughs> it was in there. You should have read more carefully before you signed yeah. it, right? So there's bipartisan pushback. So let me be clear. Though the bills mm-hmm. that have been against it have been spearheaded by Republicans, there's bipartisan pushback. And so, so the Washington Beacon writes this story about the um, Biden administration spending $30 million on crack pipes, which I, I did some research it's a, it's on. A, it's like much- sensationalist, right? It's, yeah. it's, to, oh, yeah. it's, it's totally to evoke an image of what the public might think of crack pipe users. Not pipe users, not smoky, but crack pipe which then goes to, we are back to criminalization of. Yep. Or prohibition, right? Like we want yeah, to. Yeah. So, you know, there, it, it is a hey, racial hey. trope. So, you know, Drug Policy Alliance has put together a great letter that talks about these racial tropes that are used, the crack pipe and, you know, crack as a, 
particularly nefarious drug, right? It is a myth. So the narrative then becomes the government is Biden is giving out crack pipes to people and the prohibitionist in us all as Americans are like, what? The government is mm-hmm. my tax dollars are paying for people to use drugs. You know, that's the, mm-hmm. the visceral reaction. And, mm-hmm. and we're like, no, no, no. Let's explain what harm reduction is. And great, but it is too late, right? The, the yeah. crack pipe narrative is already out there. And yep. um, Marco Rubio first, first introduces a very racist bill because it is called the crack act and it bans the use of ARPA funds, which, you know, the American rescue plan funds for the purchase of crack pipes or other cylindrical objects that didn't receive bipartisan support, probably because the Democrats were like, why are you targeting crack pipes? And why did you call Mm -hmm. the act the crack act? Mm -hmm. But we know the opioid crisis is considered a white crisis. So let's call it the pipes act. So he gets Manchin to jump on and he introduces a second bill that it has bipartisan support called the Pipes Act, bans the use of ARPA funds for both needles, uh, syringes, and pipes and other cylindrical objects, right? But there is this exception for the syringes only. There is an exception for states that have been classified as the CDC, have gotten CDC permission to be in the state of emergency, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's only for the syringes not for the pipes. And so it is, it's very sad when it gets turned into this whole, well, all this is just enabling. And it's like, no, we're helping people. We're helping. And look at last year, we had the most number of overdose deaths of the overdose crisis. Yeah. You know, first of all, yes, you heard me kind of groan and moan as you were talking only because, you know, as a black person in America, it's like, the system is designed to do what the system exactly is supposed to be doing, especially for Black folks. That's the way I feel. And I'm, I'm talking about a feeling based on, you know, these kind of policies and sort of what's being communicated and how it's being communicated is, continues to say, well, Black people, really, we don't give a shit about you. Thank you very much. I'm just going to be blunt about it. And people can agree or disagree, but that's the message I continually get. And I'm an older person. I worry for our younger folks who may be receiving this message and then how does that get internalized in their understanding of their own self-worth so we have to continue to work doubly triply quadruply hard to make sure that people know that they're loved and they're worthy and so i really love what you said about these sites being places of love i was just in another meeting today where somebody was talking about the importance of love the importance of connection the importance of relationship And for many, many people who are struggling with mental health conditions and substance use conditions, that's been broken somewhere, Mm -hmm. you know, and or other traumas exist Mm -hmm. that, that get ignored. Nobody's paying attention to that. It's like, just get off the drug, you know, well, wait a minute. No, where, where is the love? Where's the connection? Where's the community? Where's the relationship? Where, where is all of that kind of stuff? And here it is being handed on a silver platter, but people, people don't see that as the necessary target. They see something else as the target, meaning, you know, don't give them stuff to help them in their lives, make them ready. Like yeah, make it them, harder for them, them to use drugs. Yeah. Like, but it doesn't make them harder to use drugs if they don't <laughs> yeah. have it. You yeah. But yeah. you know, what's been kind of great about here in North Carolina, um, what I've loved is that 
there is a large church coalition that has harm reduction services that has mm-hmm. syringe service provider, you know, syringe service services. And, and one of the big reasons they do it's, it's, it is a, you know, it's a Christian thing to do for them, right? That is how they see it is that they are helping their community. They are helping people most in need and showing them that they are not forsaken and thrown away. And, and, you know, yeah. so, so it really is something that could be bipartisan and could, we could all get behind. And I put together some scripts and how to, mm-hmm. and I am trying to really push everybody to call their Senator and mm-hmm. say why they should vote no, because harm reduction has been quiet. We've all been quiet, right? We, mm. you know, we'll, we'll call about the ACA, right? But mm-hmm. nobody calls about things like this. And it's, it's, I get it. It's because we feel like our senators won't listen. But guess what? If you blow anybody's phone up and you fill up their voicemail box, they listen, right? They might not vote differently on this bill, but when the next bill comes around, they're going to remember this. And so yeah. we really need to all get together. It takes five minutes. Call your senator. I have scripts to put together. You can pick one. You know, I worked on them with a bunch of advocates and community groups. And so you find one that speaks to you and you just leave a message or talk to the aide and you tell them why they should vote. No, members of Congress, senators need to at least know we're watching. And we're yes. Accountable. yes, yes, exactly, exactly. And it just feels like on the heels of you know, CRT on the heels of you oh, know, yeah. social emotional learning. And now this, it's kind of like really enough already, like, hello. But yeah. I just have to say that, um, first of all, that, you know, there were times when, you know, you couldn't see, but, you know, there was, a, as I call it, snapping, clapping, thumbing up that, you know, you know, because it was just like, this is so on point and I think so helpful for people to number one, have resources. So kind of finding some of the resources that you've, you know, created for folks and using those and, you know, kind of, again, not, you don't have to follow them to the T. That's not the point. The oh, point no. is, here's yeah. the information for you. It's making it easy to, for you. Yeah, if you don't right, want to do right. anything, you don't have to just read yeah. off the paper. Yeah, right. Yep. So I think, you know, this conversation has been just so incredibly, first of all, informative, powerful, meaningful, timely, awesome snaps claps everything and you know there's just more work to be done and I'm, I'm glad you're one of those folks along with others who are doing this work so listen I gave for- it to my dog sitter today you know and I told <laughs> yes. my mother and my grandmother that they need to call right that's yeah and that's what we need to start doing because angry mm-hmm. moms scare politicians Right? Yeah, well, there's, yes. There is empirical evidence that actually shows that. No, I'm just yeah. kidding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> there should be empirical evidence. That I know, right? That. Right, right. Yeah, so yeah. thank you, Talid, for, you know, uh, joining for the conversation. And, thank you, you know, again, uh, this has just been uh, more than I would have even imagined and just want to thank you and remind our listeners, hey, you know where to find us and make sure to listen into Unapologetically Black Unicorns next week. <laughs>